We have the pleasure of having Dr. Gerizo here. He's a uh, founding chair of the dermatology department at Wake Forest University. He has been on tons of committees and councils and advisory boards. If you guys have ever looked at the Bologna book, you'll see his name on there. It's one of our Bibles in dermatology. Uh, he's published over 200 articles and abstract, and he's just one of those guys that you'll hear his name time and time again. He's a fantastic speaker. We have him almost at every conference because He's just great to listen to, and he's going to be doing two lectures. We're going to have a break in between, but it's on complex medical derm, um, so just uh, get in for a great lecture. So welcome, Dr. Gerizo. Thank you very much. You know, it really is um, a privilege to be uh, speaking to your group, and um, the reason that I'm um, easy in terms of uh, making it a priority to come is because I really believe in what you're doing, and it's very rewarding you know, for speakers to have such a large audience who are attentive uh, to discussions of complex medical dermatology. I mean, we've created a healthcare system that doesn't really incentivize taking care of the sicker patients. And so when people want to hear about it, it kind of makes all of us glad. And if you look at the long-term, you know, future of our specialty, you know, that we all love and care about so much. I really see a lot of cross-fertilization. I'm not one of those medical dermatologists who is against cosmetic dermatology or surgical oncology and dermatology, just the opposite. But I think um, in the future when McDonald's puts a, um, you know, a cosmetic center uh, on the other side of the coffee, um, then the prices come down and when everybody on earth is doing it, people are going to look to the fact that we're really those individuals who have kind of devoted our careers to taking care of diseases of skin, hair, nails, and mucous membranes to being the logical choice to be people who are well-informed about wellness for skin, hair, nails. And let's face it, we don't talk about mucous membranes a lot, but uh, that's part of what we do too. Um, I um, need to say that uh, it's interesting that my, I've never felt that there was a conflict between the fact that I'm 80% at Wake Forest and I work there Monday through Thursday, and then I'm 30% at Weill Cornell uh, Department of Dermatology in, in New York City, uh, Fridays and Saturdays. Um, but I'm noticing when my secretary updated this, she didn't put my new cover slide that mentions that, and it was the Wake Forest people that did the slides, so that's amusing. Um, but I am also a professor at Cornell. Um, as far as conflict of interest, really none of these are relevant to what I'm going to be speaking about today, but I have um, a, a received honoraria from these three companies, um, I, and I suppose I should also disclose that some of the images are from the Bologna book, and, and the Bologna book, although technically this edition is um, Bologna Urizzo Rapini, and the next one is uh, Bologna Urizzo Schaefer with Julie Schaefer from NYU um, moving into Ron Rapini's spot. Um, really, this book, that textbook is all about Jean Bologna, so I'm not, I'm not uh, by using some of the images, it's, it's not really a true conflict. She is an amazing uh, dermatologist and is really the driving force behind that book. I'm kind of a tag-along. Well, you know, first thing that I noticed when I skimmed through the rest of the program was that there's a whole lecture on autoimmune blistering diseases, and um, it really, since I have two consecutive lectures, I have quite a bit of flexibility, and what I'm going to do is not repeat what others are going to speak about. Um, what I really do is I look at, co at complex medical dermatology as being vast, 
And so I try to pick topics that illustrate approaches that are valuable across your practice on the medical dermatology side of what you do. Um, most patients who come to see me, whether it's in North Carolina or in New York City, have something wrong on the inside and they have something wrong, and, and you know, um, we could actually make a joke about that. They have something wrong on the inside and something wrong on their skin and they think that it might all be related. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, I might get a referral of a patient with dermatomyositis, which then makes people feel that they've given me something that I really, um, you know, I'm looking for, and so then I, I get some patients who have stuff on the inside up here. I get some three or four delusions of parasitosis patients and some other things like that. So if you do complex medical dermatology, you do do a lot of the range of all the things that are not surgical and not, um, and not cosmetic. Um, I think that it's important that you understand that patients' expectations are high because of the fact that the healthcare system doesn't incentivize taking care of the sicker patient. The effort has shifted such that in order to pay the bills and keep the staff going and, and you know, keep everything going, uh, people have had to have consultants come in who say you need to do a little more of these things. And so a little, the, the, the pressure on the medical side of the office visits is very great because there's less effort, less hours devoted to that. So as a result, patients tend to be fairly desperate when they come in. They've probably seen four or five, six, seven, eight, all sorts of people. They might have been to the mall and gone to a health food store and they've certainly been on the internet um, researching what they think they have or what someone told them they have. So there are a lot of preconceived notions and they feel very expert and they really would like to kind of drive. They'd like to take that steering wheel and drive the visit and tell you, look, I'm here because I, I have Bichette's disease and I want to know whether I should be on, you know, cyclosporin or whether I should be on, uh, you know, thalidomide. And so uh, you have to discipline yourself to go back and really realize, first of all, that what you tell the patient on the first visit in their mind is patient education and what you tell them on the second visit is an excuse. And so I like to tell people that have a lot of expectations with respect to the fact that, you know, maybe I've been very built up by the, by the doctor who referred them, um, you know, perhaps because <laughs> their, their problem, you know, just seem kind of odd and, and they want to make it sound like it's worth driving, you know, to Winston-Salem or going into Manhattan to see me. But um, I like to say there are three possible outcomes from this visit. Um, you might have a condition, or there are conditions, talking to, to our group now, like sarcoidosis or dermatomyositis, where you can see the patient, you can perhaps even perform a biopsy, and you can perhaps form some, perform some lab tests if necessary, and you can put together a clinical pathologic diagnosis that actually integrates, it sort of solves all the problems. It explains what's going on on the inside, what's going on on the outside with one diagnosis. The other possibility, and that would maybe be illustrated when we talk about lupus. There are other conditions such as vasculitis and urticaria that I'm going to talk about, uh, which are the second category, where you will again make a proper, notice in my stories the dermatologist always gets, the, you know, we always get it right, you know, we always get the diagnosis. So you'll make a proper clinical pathologic diagnosis, which again is not always true. But um, you diagnose vasculitis or you diagnose urticaria 
And you really need to work as part of a team to understand which of the 20 inside things might be etiologic for the, the vasculitis, which of the internal manifestations might be secondary to the vasculitis. And I tell uh, people who really have a passion for medical dermatology that in a way, if you try to be the patient's internist, or if you try to be the patient's pediatrician, or you try to be their primary care physician, in a way, you're kind of cheating other patients who need you. There's such a shortage of people power on the medical dermatology side that if all of us spent a whole visit, you know, checking on the patient's blood pressure medicines and taking out a stethoscope uh, and doing that, all of that stuff, um, we could be seeing another patient who needs our help doing what we do, which is making complex medical dermatologic diagnoses and coming up with evaluation and treatment plans. And so I think it's very important to communicate with the patient's primary care physician. And so in category two, you're gonna make the diagnosis from the dermatologic standpoint, but you need to work as a team. And I think the more we appreciate that, uh, the easier medical, complex medical dermatology patient management becomes. Now there are times, you know, when I feel that I'm gonna do an infinitely better job driving their systemic therapy, whether it be for autoimmune ballistic disease management or even dermatomyositis, I think we do a better job. But I still need the primary care physician because they're the ones who are gonna do the excellent history, physical, and lab tests to monitor, for example, for cutaneous malignancies or to help me monitor for the complications of systemic corticosteroid therapy. So there has to be some communication there. And because of the complexity of electronic records and everything else that we have to do, and because of the number of patients I see with these sorts of things, and I'm basically at a straight salary at both Wake and Cornell, it's probably why I have to do both, um, that I, um, I don't um, uh, pick up the phone and call every time. What I'll do is I'll include the patient in saying, look, I want you to clear this with your medical doctor. I'm sending them a copy of the note. Those are the kinds of strategies that you can use. And always remember, that patients with dermatologic conditions kind of defy the overarching medical principle that you always try to unify with one diagnosis. If you do a complete dermatologic exam, your typical patient's gonna go out of there with at least six diagnoses. I mean, they're gonna have nevi and then a younger person, some tinea versicolor, or pityriasis versicolor, they're gonna have some tinea unguium, they're gonna have some actinic keratosis that you just heard about if they're a little bit older, depending on their situation they're gonna go out of there with a problem list. Well, the likelihood is that they may well have things going on in the inside, and they may well have one or more dermatologic diagnoses, but they might be either completely unrelated or else they're related through therapy. What I mean by that is, the, yes, the patient has um, lupus, but really their facial eruption this visit is seborrheic dermatitis that's rebounded because the systemic corticosteroids were tapered. You know, that sort of thing. And so I think you need to be, um, I think the, the more you tell the patient, and you've got to do this quickly because we're under a lot of time pressure, the more you can get this across to the patient, the less likely you are to have a patient who's dissatisfied. You know, you've created a realistic kind of partnership as to how you're going to go ahead and who's gonna do what. And I think people worry so much on the medical side about malpractice prevention. And you know, truthfully, medical dermatology is probably the safest thing you can do in all of medicine. 
as far as the number of suits, but at the same time, uh, it's infinitely easier to consent cosmetic dermatology and surgical oncology because you have a consent form. And because people really don't know how to consent therapeutics and medical dermatology, um, it makes, it, uh, makes for a little more tension there as well. But I think the patient is much more likely to be happy when there's an agreement with the other doctors. You know, medicine is, has a certain amount of art to it, and you can be very knowledgeable, but you really never have the complete answer because there never really is a complete 100% answer. And so I think you want to avoid having your patient trapped between the dueling egos of two physicians. And so a lot of times I find that some compromise is necessary between perhaps what my optimal therapy would be and what the primary care physician's agenda is or what the specialty physician's agenda is. For example, I might be managing a patient who has a transplant and they have actinic keratoses and they've had some squamous cell carcinomas and I know the data that on average, obviously there's variability depending on the patient's skin color, on their, where they live, how much sun exposure they've had, but I know that on average across the world there's a 6% mortality in transplant patients from metastatic cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. So these patients need vigilance and my preference would be also to have patients who have a lot of sun damage uh, to take um, a retinoid systemically and to be using um, a combination of various types of topical actinic keratosis products to kind of get on top of the whole um, restless epithelium, if you will, uh, problem, an immune surveillance problem. Well, I find that we deal with patients from a five-state area in North Carolina, and so there are a number of transplant centers out there. And there are some transplant doctors who are violently opposed to my using amiquimod for no real reason, no scientific reason that makes sense to me. And there's some that are opposed to the concept of using a retinoid in their patients. Again, no logical reason. Scientifically, I would say both opinions would be ridiculous. But at the same time, it doesn't matter what I think. The patient likes me and needs me, but if anything happens to their transplant, they kind of need and like their transplant doctor, you know? So I work out a compromise in those situations. The same is true in patients with extensive psoriasis who have had a cancer five or 10 years ago. All of the therapies that I might want to choose except for a retinoid would be immunosuppressive. And for some bizarre reason, some um, oncologists have a preference for one over another. And it might not be my first choice, but I might tend to realize again that the patient needs both of us and uh, sometimes absolute answers aren't known, so you've got you've to cut out a deal. Okay, so we're going to get on to the real content that's, you know, like on, you know, recertifying exams and stuff like that in a minute, but um, those are some general points that I wanted to make. Um, the, the last thing I wanted to say before I actually start, though, and you'll see that vasculitis illustrates this, is that I think you have to discipline yourself uh, again, this relates to not letting the patient drive. The patient wants to talk therapy immediately, and they want to talk about this versus this. And I always try to discipline myself to go back and say, first of all, is the clinical pathologic diagnosis correct? We have a major problem with pathology 
in that over the last 20 years, the pathology report has been dumbed down. It used to be a report that described the stratum corneum and the epidermis and the changes in the dermis and the subcutaneous tissue. And the clinician's job was to integrate that information in the differential diagnosis that that generated with a differential diagnosis that you generated based on examining the patient, which is kind of the bottom line, looking at the gross pathology. But pathologists have been forced, because a lot of primary care offices do biopsies, to put a lot of clinical interpretation on the biopsy. So the biopsy might say contact dermatitis. Well, there's no way you know that under the microscope. You know that it's an acute spongiotic dermatitis that could be an acute eczematous eruption, but you don't know that it's a contact dermatitis. Or they might say that this is the kind of biopsy seen in a patient with subacute cutaneous lupus, but it may in fact be a patient who's had lesions that were discoid lesions or tumid lesions that were partially treated and are altered somewhat and resemble those that people with subacute cutaneous lupus have, but that isn't what the patient has. They have chronic cutaneous lupus. They have a disease that's just in their skin. I once had a house officer, uh, an internal medicine resident and his spouse, and I spent hours talking to them about how she had tumid lesions of lupus and that DNA was negative and everything else and that this was a condition that in her setting was chronic cutaneous lupus. And the PATH report came back, subacute cutaneous lupus. They called for the PATH report, which is sort of against whatever those initials are that stand for what that is, of <laughs> calling, I guess, a HIPAA violation. They called and got the, um, got the PATH report and freaked out, went on the internet. And so the last, um, and so the, the point then would be, make sure you have the right clinical pathologic diagnosis. Then if the disease is a skin manifestation of potential internal manifestations like vasculitis, Listen when I talk about vasculitis to what we do to look for that, what's going on on the inside. You're gonna treat the patient completely differently if they have renal disease from their vasculitis than if they just have spots in their skin. The next is etiology, and we tend to memorize a list of tests. If the patient has erythema multiforme, they need these 10 lab tests. If they have uh, urticaria, they need these 20 lab tests. And our, and our the Bologna book kind of encourages that, which I actually don't like. Um, I think that what we really need to do is say, are we doing this test to see the extent of the disease? In which case, if they have four episodes of vasculitis in a year, we better do the urinalysis four times to see if their kidneys are affected each of those four times. Whereas if it's a test like a hepatitis C, the patient really only needs to have it done once because that's a test to see what the etiology of the vasculitis is. And so people confuse that. And the typical patient that comes to see me with generalized pruritus has 10 ANAs in their chart every time they go see a doc. And lupus doesn't cause generalized pruritus. So it's, if, if you put into the equation the fact that 50% of people over 50 tend to have a borderline positive ANA, the test is so sen overly sensitive, you have a lot of hysteria in, induced in the world. You do enough ANAs on enough older people, and I include myself in the older people group, you'll get um, positives. And then, uh, so step one, um, clinical pathologic diagnosis. Step two, internal, is there, are there internal effects of this disease? Step three, what's the etiology? Obviously, you're gonna treat vasculitis that's caused from hepatitis C by treating the hepatitis C. You can be doing all sorts of other stuff that might actually make the hepatitis C worse, and that would be a, a bad move. Um, and finally, 
God or whoever you believe is in charge has a sense of humor when it comes to treatment. And treatments that are cheap and safe don't work that well. And treatments that are expensive and toxic work fantastically well. And there's a linear relationship. So when the patient comes in and they want isotretinoin for one comedone, that's probably not appropriate. But if they have acne fulminans, probably giving them a topical retinoid doesn't make a lot of sense. So you have to take all the therapies that the patient finds on the internet in a basket, and, and probably they've been on half of them by the time they come to see you. And you need to order those therapies uh, as to risk-benefit. You know, and I consider price to be a toxicity. So there's cost and phys potential physical cost or risk compared to what kind of benefit do you need? A patient with vasculitis that affects the kidney has a life-threatening disease, and someone with spots, you know, doesn't need much. So that's, that's an, another uh, important overarching kind of principle. Okay, well, let's move on then, finally. So this summarizes uh, the points that I just made. Establish an excellent clinical pathologic confirmation. I would say that 50% of the patients that I see that are referred by dermatology offices are referred because of a clinical pathologic discrepancy. And so part of my job is to say, look, let me look and see what I think is going on. Let me look at the words that are on the original path report. A lot of times, the original biopsy was done at a time when the eruption was new and untreated. And it might actually be the best shot at getting the best answer. And my approach might be to request that slide and have our pathologist reread it in the context of what I saw. On the other hand, the biopsy report might be a shave biopsy, and I think the patient's got paniculitis. Well, obviously, they've got to do another one. Um, and then it, again, summarizes the kind of stuff we've talked about. So let's move on to vasculitis. Now, there's no condition in all of medicine that has more disagreement in terms of classification and nomenclature than vasculitis. And you know, there was a joke that when people didn't know what was going on with patients in the 60s, they thought they might have a virus, and when things patients didn't know, doctors didn't know what was going on in the 70s and 80s, they thought they might have an autoimmune connective tissue disease. And sort of more in the new millennium, when people don't know what's going on, I'm talking about our colleagues, they wonder if the patient might have vasculitis. Um, so I think one of the frustrations when you're reading the literature is garbage in, you know, garbage out. If you don't really have an agreement about what to call something, then you can have chaos when you're reading the literature. Like, you don't know whether they mixed apples and oranges, and what, what are they really, you know, how am I going to manage this patient if this paper was talking about the disease this way, and this, this paper is really talking about a whole different subset of patients. So when you talk about the kind of vasculitis that we see the most in our practice, I call it cutaneous small vessel vasculitis. I don't think you need to put the word necrotizing in there because by definition vasculitis is necrotizing. And I don't think you need to put the word um, venulitis because that confuses people, just put small vessel. And I don't like to use pathology words like leukocytoclastic vasculitis to define a clinical syndrome. And the reason I don't 
is if you biopsy the edge of a bee sting, it might say leukocytoclastic vasculitis. If you biopsy the urticarial border of a bullous pemphigoid lesion, it might say that in the differential is bullous leukocytoclastic vasculitis. Uh, if you inject a lot of histamine in high doses into the skin, or if you take a patient with cold urticaria and keep touching them with a cold probe, and you biopsy, you'll see leukocytoclastic vasculitis. And Jeff Callen just looked at, a hunt, at I don't know how many patients with sweet syndromes, biopsies, and half of them showed leukocytoclastic vasculitis, even though that was supposed to be the way you diagnose sweets, was that it didn't show leukocytoclastic vasculitis. So I think you have to get away from the notion, and I think it takes our residents really a full year to get away from thinking that the answer is on the pathology report. The pathology report is a starting point for you as the clinician to integrate what you're seeing and what's on that report and see how well they fit. Now, if they find a scabies mite or they find some dermatophyte, you messed up. You know, if it was a, a bump and it's got, you know, molluscum bodies in it, you know, that's pathognomonic. If it's a basal cell, it's a basal cell probably. But on the other hand, um, I get patients all the time who come in, and I mean, this happens to me because I see weird stuff all the time. That's what I do. Maybe every other month, um, the referring diagnosis is vasculitis. And the doc has done a hepatitis B and C and A and A and all these tests and urinalyses. And I walk in, and the patient has pityriasis, lichenoides, at varioliformis acuta, pleva. And it's a truncal eruption, and yeah, there's some purpura, but the reason that there's confusion is the pathology read, report was read as something that's true under the microscope, lymphocytic vasculitis, but has no relevance clinically to this patient. This patient has pleva. Um, so um, the, the intense uh, infiltrate of lymphocytes is one part of the thing that you see in pityriasis lichenoides acuta, but it's it doesn't mean it's this syndrome. So we're talking about patients with palpable purpura. Now, if any of you do inpatient work, you will get a consult at least every other week on look at this patient, do they have vasculitis? And they have purpura, and it's palpable. Usually it's solar purpura. We used to call it senile purpura, you know, on patients' arms. Yes, it is palpable, and yes, it is purpura, but it has nothing to do with vasculitis. What we really mean by palpable purpura is there's something about that purpura that looks inflammatory. It looks like blood vessels have leaked um, red blood cells um, because of inflammation, not because the patient has a platelet problem, you know, and have, they have non-inflammatory purpura. Usually it's on dependent sites. Now, dependent sites on somebody that's standing up are their legs, but somebody who's in the hospital, it might be on their bottom. So you've got to remember that, too. Um, Post-capillary venial is the site of the pathology, and we believe this is a circulating immune complex-mediated illness. Now, what that means is for the 50% of patients where we find an underlying disease, there's something circulating around in the bloodstream that filters out in these blood vessels on dependent sites and makes them leak. I give a talk to the medical students on bright red rashes. And this has nothing to do with pathogenesis, but when you see patients who come into your office setting and they have a rash that's generalized, 
always try to think what it would look like under the microscope. The mildest level of red rash is something called an erythema. So think now of measles or of a drug rash that's what we call macular and papular erythema. You can also have a scarlatiniform erythema where the rash looks like scarlet fever, where the red, instead of being little dots, is confluent. If you biopsy that, all you'll see is a stretched blood vessel and a few little lymphocytes. If you go to the next step of vessel damage, completely different mechanism, you have an urticarial eruption. Now the eruption looks like an orange peel. It's not just red, the vessel's not just dilated, but it's leaked, it's leaked protonaceous fluid. And just like if you put a PPD in the right location or you put your local anesthesia in the right location, when you have fluid in the dermis, it looks like an orange peel. That's what an urticarial eruption is. The next step of vessel damage is erythema multiforme. You have an urticarial lesion, but there's a target with purpura in the middle. The blood vessel now is dilated, it leaks protonaceous fluid, and it leaks red cells. The ultimate is vasculitis, where the vessel's actually dead or dying, and it leaks everything because it's, uh, it's uh, been destroyed. We'll talk about why that happens. So why are classifications important? You have um, classmates who uh, might say to you what my intern mate said to me, which is, uh, well, the only emergency in dermatology is the senior prop. And uh, so they're bragging about how you know, precise their discipline is. You know? Well, one of the nice things about dermatology is we do really have some unique advantages. Um, we do have um, the opportunity to help, you know, even though doctors, uh, you know, clinicians, don't cure, we cure almost nothing. You know, we can cure things you take two weeks of antibiotics for, we can cure things you cut out, we can cure things that, uh, some cancers with chemotherapy and radiation, but all the rest of this stuff, high blood pressure, diabetes, asthma, and hay fever, we control until it goes away on its own. A lot of our diseases, some of them are very long-lasting, like psoriasis and atopic dermatitis. You have a tendency towards those, perhaps even your whole life. Some of them uh, are intermittent and much more um, relievable. But in almost every instance, I love the fact that as a dermatologist, we can see the disease. We can oftentimes get a clinical pathologic diagnosis that's precise. And we can give the patient an understanding about what it is. And we can treat it, not cure it, but control it. And that's fun. Rheumatologists always, to me, um, when I was an intern in 1975, my fellow interns did say that the only emergency was going to be the senior prom. <laughs> but uh, besides that, they, um, and I might tell you a story when we get to urticaria that's kind of funny along those lines. But um, they, they really, uh, six out of the 16 went into rheumatology. And we always thought rheumatologists were awesome because they made these criteria. Once I got into dermatology, I realized that the criteria on the surface are great, but they're not always perfect in practice. Vicki Wirth, who's a professor at University of Pennsylvania, bullied her way after years and years and years into helping revise the criteria for lupus that I'll talk about in a minute. But um, uh, the um, problem with the vasculitis criteria is that they're the absolute worst. 
And the way criteria are derived, and I think it's worth knowing whether you're talking about scleroderma or Bichette's disease or lupus or any set of criteria, is there's a room full of rheumatologists and they say, okay, who is the expert on vasculitis? And some people raise their hands and they say, okay, go back to your institution and take 100 charts and then take uh, all of the things that could be a criteria and we'll enter them into the computer and see what correlated with your diagnosing that patient as having vasculitis. And then take another group of patients that have something else and use those same criteria and make sure that they don't correlate with that diagnosis. And then once you have a set of tentative criteria, we'll take them forth to another institution and see how well they predict cases of vasculitis, how well it correlates with the clinical diagnosis. Well, in the case of vasculitis, I actually gave a lecture to a rheumatology group and dermatology group where I talked about classification disasters. And this is a classification disaster. The rheumatologist criteria that still exist for vasculitis, they're being revised, um, say that there's one condition that corresponds with what I'm talking about called hypersensitivity angitis, and there's another one that corresponds with what they call hennock schoenlein purpura. And apparently rheumatologists if you have vasculitis and you're under 16, you're called hennock schoenlein purpura because the criteria are just like these for hennock schoenlein purpura, but they're, you know, for people that are um, under 16. And if you're over 16, it's called vasculitis. Well, that's silly because children can have post-streptococcal small vessel vasculitis, they can have small vessel vasculitis from dermatomyositis, and they can have what we call hennock schoenlein purpura, which is vasculitis with IgA immune complexes. On the other hand, adults can have those same things, including IgA complexes. So any article you read about hennock schoenlein purpura or hypersensitivity angitis, cutaneous small vessel vasculitis, written with these criteria, you basically are not 100% sure what they're talking about. So they might talk about the prognostic difference or the amazing effect of this therapy, and you're really not sure because the, the, the diagnosis is completely imprecise. The second one is medication at disease onset. I mean, I have no idea what that means, but the typical adult inpatient is on 14 medications in the United States. Palpable purpura is fine unless you're talking about solar purpura. But the biggest difference, the biggest joy of being in our specialty is understanding clinical and pathologic concepts, which uh, as much, I have infinite respect for internists and need to work with them every day, but they don't understand pathology because this pathology criteria is ridiculous. Every single disease in dermatology, including a basal cell, the only exceptions are erythema multiforme and pityriasis lichenoides pleva, acuta shows an arterial and a venial with histologic change showing some neutrophils in a perivascular, extravascular location. It's the most ridiculous criteria in the history of criteria. So completely useless, totally useless. And this is why there's a lot of confusion. Um, these are the, the, the groups of vasculitis that this came from. The criteria I showed you were for number four but the criteria identical for number five, except it's age under 16. Now, other people have stumbled along and tried to do criteria. It's interesting, because I was a resident in Chapel Hill in the 70s, 
And these criteria were made, you know, in the 90s. Actually, the guy who spearheaded this was one of the third-year medical students when I was a, um, when I was a, um, uh, an intern. But he, they had some people at, at Chapel Hill that were superb dermatopathologists, and they had some superb dermatologists who were interested in vasculitis. They weren't inv invited to this conference, so there were no dermatologists there, which is, I think, a sad thing for our specialty. And they're redoing it again, and they're making the same mistake. There's going to be a 2012 Chapel Hill consensus classification, which will probably not be very good either. Well, there are lots of exotic uh, conditions that are characterized by small vessel vasculitis. And I don't know that it's necessary to go over this at this time. Um, what I really want to focus on more is using vasculitis um, as an example of a window where you can actually see in the skin a reflection of what's going on on the inside in your patient. And it's kind of an exciting thing. It's one of the things I like about vasculitis. It's also so accessible when you have this process manifesting itself in the skin that it's a lot easier to get the clinical pathologic diagnosis and to classify the vasculitis than it would be if it was only on the inside. So I don't think we dermatology clinicians should, and practitioners of dermatology should really sell ourselves short. You know, we really have a lot to offer to these patients. I genuinely feel patients who have internal problems and cutaneous disease are infinitely better off if they have a dermatology practice, you know, on their side. And any of you that do this work know that I, instantly that I'm right, you know, about that. So I like to classify or think about vasculitis as being a processes that affect smaller vessels or bigger vessels. And I think that there's some differences in terms of how life-threatening the problem can be over the short term. And also maybe sometimes who should be the driver in terms of therapy. Now, rather than going through all this immunology stuff, what I like to do is think about it this way. You're never supposed to give the disease a personality, you know? But I love to do that. I think it makes it a lot more fun. And uh, you're not supposed to give biology a reason or a teleological, it's called a teleologic argument if you think that there's a purpose to biology. But if you think about it this way, your body is constantly trying to eliminate um, foreign invaders. And one of the mechanisms for doing that is making, is it used to be called a type 3 reaction or an immune complex reaction, is making an antibody against this invader. And then this complex of the antibody and the, the protein or whatever the uh, antigen is circulate until they get filtered out in the reticuloendothelial system. That's the way it's supposed to work. And then it gets flushed out. You know, uh, people think that where there's a lot more autoimmune disease in more highly developed countries, mainly if you want to simplify, because our immune system doesn't have enough to do. You know, if it's busy fighting parasites and infections all the time, it doesn't have time to make multiple sclerosis and lupus. Um, but uh, in this instance, these complexes are circulating, and instead of making it where they're teleologically they're supposed to go, the reticular endothelial system, they get trapped poor complexes. They're trapped in a gap that develops on your lower extremities because of all the pressure down there, you know? 
And so you have these little gaps in the endothelial cells, and these complexes get trapped there. Well, once they're trapped, they teleologically, they think they're in the reticular endothelial system, so they activate complement, and they call in all these neutrophils. And neutrophils are kind of fast cells. They don't have a lot of judgment. They, you know, they, they just fire off indiscriminately their lysosomal enzymes, and they destroy the poor innocent bystander, which is the blood vessel, and it leaks. Um, unfortunately, these palpable purple lesions can occur in your kidney or your brain or your, or your intestines and produce major, major illness. So dis-ease is like an abnormal functioning of something that should be a normal biologic process. And uh, uh, so um, since I'm not going to talk about bullous diseases, it's kind of why I'm stalling a little bit here. We're going to get through this, the rest of the stuff, don't worry. So um, the only difference between that argument, which was the 1975 kind of understanding of vasculitis and today, all we've learned since, is when I was a resident, we thought that all the epidermis did was made a basal cell, it died and became a barrier. And all a blood vessel was was a tube. And now we know that blood vessels and endothelial cells are really an active part and a participant. They, so they, they express these adhesion molecules and they actually help orchestrate what goes on, and the epidermis is a very active immunologic organ, and why wouldn't it be? It's the junction between your inside and your outside. So here you finally have a clinical picture, palpable perperon dependent sites. You know the patient in the middle. Why should we do complete skin exams? Our medical assistants hate complete skin exams because it takes the patient a long time to get undressed, and it takes them a long time to get dressed and get out of there. But the thing is, this patient in the middle had lupus. And they had just had their rheumatologist lower their prednisone dose and simultaneously their uh, mycophenolate mofetil dose. And they just weren't feeling well. And they didn't have anything anywhere until we took their socks off and saw this palpable purpura. Well, this palpable purpura, which biopsy proved leukocytoclastic vasculitis under the microscope, predicted better than falling complements or rising double-stranded DNA, that this patient was going to have another flare of their renal lupus that was aborted because of finding these spots. It's like a window. You can see what's going to happen inside. You're starting to get these spots in the kidney. You just can't see them yet. They're not showing up as red blood cells in the urine or protein cast. So you really need to look for these subtle clues. Now, if you look at the picture on the... the um, the far side, on the le your left, just think if that was the kidney and you had to have someone stick a needle in there. What if they stuck it into one of the spots, and it looks just like that on the kidney. What if they stuck it into one of the spots that was just normal skin? Or what if they stuck it into that rotten old spot that doesn't have any neutrophils left because it's three, four, five days old? Or what if the patient had already gotten a couple of days of um, pulse solumedrol, a gram a day of thousand milligrams a day equivalent of prednisone for three days, probably there are not going to be a lot of neutrophils around on that day, right? So you really have a special opportunity to help um, put it together. But you have to remember that your biopsy is a three or four millimeter piece of an entire picture, and it's at one moment in time. If the patient's been putting a lot of clobetasol on their eczematous eruption, don't expect the pathology report to show a lot of spongiosis, you know? 
if they have a neutrophilic eruption and they've been on prednisone, don't expect you're going to see many neutrophils or eosinophils or whatever other cell you're looking for. So you have to be aware of the kind of clinical context. Don't just do a biopsy to do a biopsy. And where do you do the biopsy? You have a chance to pick. I would pick the spot that's just starting to get a little purpura in it. You know, when you hear about bullous diseases, it's the same thing. If you biopsy a bullous pemphigoid patient's blister that's not on inflamed skin, there's not going to be any inflammation. People are going to mention porphyria in the differential pathologically. If you biopsy um, a lesion that's super urticarial, it might actually have vasculitis in the differential. And if you biopsy one that's just right, you know, and they're not on therapy and there's just the erythema, you'll get the textbook pathology report. Well, this is the pathology. Notice that this pathology is very high up. It's really a post-capillary venule, and it actually is a nuclear explosion because the word karyorexis means that there's an explosion of the nucleus. Um, the, these, these are very excited neutrophils. They're ready to, to kill, you know? And the fibrinoid necrosis means they were successful. They killed that poor vessel wall. Now, Let's just say, instead of going to a little post-capillary venule, what if those immune complexes go to a muscular artery? Well, that's not good, because muscular arteries feed a chunk of something. It could be a chunk of your finger, could be a chunk of your brain or your kidney or your bowel. So large vessel vasculitis is a lot worse acutely than small vessel vasculitis. If small vessel vasculitis affects your kidney, you can still die from it, but um, large vessel vasculitis is kind of an emergency. The other thing is, this brings in the whole question of vasculitis versus vasculopathy. So now you picture there's a tube and it's feeding that fingertip. If you have inflammation of the blood vessel wall that's so inflamed that it shuts off because of the edema, you're going to have kind of dead fingertip. The internist wants you to biopsy that dead fingertip, but you're too smart for that because it's just going to show dead fingertip. You don't need that. The pathology is in the muscular artery that's proximal to that, probably around the DIP joint. There's no way I'm biopsying that, so I recommend that they get a surgeon to do it, and the surgeon does it four or five days later after the patient's already had pulse solumedrol, which is why so many pathology departments have so few biopsies of larger vessel vasculitis. But remember, what if the patient has, let's say, a disease like lupus, and instead of having vasculitis, they have antiphospholipid antibodies, which makes the blood clot. Or what if they have the central line, and they, or they have Liebman-Sachs cardiac vegetations, they throw off an embolus and it plugs off that vessel. You can get the same picture because of a plugged up vessel that you can get from vasculitis, and the treatment is completely different. And so it makes the art of dermatology a little bit more complicated. And it's complicated in large vessel vasculitis because it's hard to find were to do the biopsy. Now the other picture is an image of someone with what I call necrotizing livido reticularis. Plain old livido that kids get, you can work up all you want to, you're not going to find anything, it's, it just happens. It turns out we have a superficial and deep plexus of blood vessels in our skin, and if you have something that either plugs up or causes a vasculitis of the connecting vessels, you get pooling in the bottom and you get this bluish net. If it's a really mean plug, skin dies, and you get a net-like area of necrosis. This has to be biopsied. You can't blow off. You could, you could say, well, this livido, I'm going to do the test, but it's not going to be anything. 
This is always going to be something. It can be everything from calciphylaxis, where calcium chunks are, in, in a renal patient are doing this, which is a horrible disease to have, uh, to um, all the things we mentioned earlier, um, hyperviscosity states, vasculitis, emboli. So that's a larger vessel pattern. Now look at where the pathology is. Instead of being right under the epidermis and the papillary dermis, it's way down in the subcutaneous tissue, and it's a huge vessel. The frustration with these biopsies is when you have vasculopathy, you're supposed to just see eosinophilic material in the vessel, but as the vessel wall dies, you get secondary inflammation. And in vasculitis, you're just supposed to see inflammation in the blood vessel wall, but as the vessel wall swells, you get a blood clot. So sometimes it's impossible to tell whether it's vasculitis or a vasculopathy even under the microscope. Now on the, on the other side, on your right, you have a patient with cutaneous polyarteritis nodosa. When there's aneurysmal dilatations of the vessel wall, that's diagnostic for that disease. So how do you approach patients with this? Well, what you do first is what we just talked about. You confirm the diagnosis, assess the extent of the disease, and attempt to establish the etiology. So when you do the biopsy, you do a punch biopsy if it's just a little spot, but if it's that large vessel thing with the livido, you gotta do an incisional biopsy. And you realize lesions have lifespans and therapy affects them. Now what about to find out the extent of the disease? Well, the way to do this, and you can also do this for other diseases that occur by a different mechanism, like erythema nodosum or erythema multiformia, which is a completely different mechanism, uh, or sweet syndrome, um, lots of vessel-based dermatoses. You say to yourself, let's just pretend that if they have something on the inside, that inside thing is circulating and filtering out in the skin. Well, what could it be that they have? And that's where, rather than memorizing a list of tests with vasculitis, um, you could say to yourself, well, let's think about it. If they have circulating immune complexes, it's like serum sickness, so they might have some fever, some arthralgias, some myalgias. If they go to the kidney glomeruli, they might have proteinuria or hematuria. Maybe I should get a urinalysis. And maybe if they have three episodes in one year, I should get a urinalysis every time, because just because it wasn't in the kidney last time doesn't mean it wasn't in the kidney this time. By the way, you should all have all this stuff uh, in your things, but, and anybody that wants any more, it's, uh, I can send it to you if you just email me, if, it, if you don't find it either in your handouts or if you can't read it. Um, people with vasculitis really confuse neurologists sometimes because they can get general or peripheral focal or diffuse findings. They can look like someone with MS. They can look like someone with peripheral neuropathy. In fact, with larger vessel vasculitis, you can get a vasculitis of the vessels that feed big nerves. It's called a vasa nervorum vasculitis, or mononeuritis multiplex, which is one of the cardinal diagnostic features of polyarteritis nodosa. Um, you can get a synovial inflammation, so they can get arthralgias. If they actually have an erosive arthritis, you may have found out why they have vasculitis, because they really have rheumatoid arthritis or something like that, and that's why they have vasculitis. It can affect the gastrointestinal tract and produce palpable purpura, but if they have Crohn's disease or, or um, ulcerative colitis, that may be why they have vasculitis. It can affect the pleura, the pericardium, 
Now, what about the etiology? Realize that you only find the etiology about 40 to 50% of the time. But this is one of the questions you can ask that's fun. You can say, okay, if something's circulating, we already answered, if it's circulating, where could it go? Where else could it be filtered? Somebody doesn't have to write a paper that says, well, maybe it could filter in your retina, maybe it could filter in your adrenal gland. I mean, it could filter lots of places. It could filter anywhere that has a filter that filters things in the body. What about etiology? Rather than a list of tests, I like to think of classes. And this applies to lots of reactions in the skin. Is it a drug? The biggest risk with drug is that drugs get overblamed. Classic example, patient comes to me, different disease, they have psoriasis, uh, but the rheumatologist didn't know they had psoriasis. So the patient, they thought, had rheumatoid arthritis because they were seropositive. They had a positive rheumatoid factor, they had an erosive arthritis, they didn't notice a skin eruption because the doctor before had put the patient on prednisone, and um, they, um, put the patient on methotrexate, and the patient got a rash. And three weeks later, they got a rash, and so they sent the patient to me, and I get this consult every other week. Is this patient started on X, they have inflammatory bowel disease, they started on X, or they have rheumatoid arthritis, they started on X, they come to see me, they have a rash, and the rash is psoriasis. Well, my question is, so you stopped your prednisone three weeks ago? And the answer is always yes. So what happened was, Dermatologists uh, and dermatology practices like to taper off what the patient was on and start the new thing. Because we realize the new thing takes six or eight weeks oftentimes in the case of methotrexate, let's say, to work. Um, in the case of biologics, it can be 12 weeks. So they, you know, we would overlap a little bit, whereas our colleagues are more protocol-driven. So well, in the protocol, they stopped, you know, they had a washout period. And I'm always saying, you know, you don't need a washout period. This is your patient. You're not doing a clinical trial. You don't have to stop the prednisone cold turkey. So they, they stop it, and, and they rebound their, the psoriasis that was being suppressed. So the drug gets blamed when it's not really the drug. Uh, the second category is infections. If you're talking about erythema multiforme that's recurrent, herpes simplex is the most common. If you're talking about the virus that's most common in cutaneous small vessel vasculitis, it's hepatitis C. If you're talking about the bacteria that's most common, it's strep. The test for strep is not ASO titer. It's an anti-DNase B, which is um, a, um, an enzyme that's produced by the, by the strep that lasts for several weeks, so it's positive for longer. Fungal infection, did the person go to the San Joaquin Valley and breathe in some spores? Uh, did they go to the, you know, were they in the histo belt on the Ohio River Valley? AFB, did they breathe in some TB and get a gone complex? That's the time. Or is it uh, Lucio phenomenon in lepromatous leprosy? So that you can get, uh, and in the world, these more exotic infections are frequent causes of vasculitis. And finally, the catch-all category, are there diseases associated with immune complexes which could be connective tissue vascular disease, usually myelodysplastic malignancy, inflammatory bowel disease, chronic active hepatitis, et cetera. Okay, now you're ready to treat. Non-ulcerative cutaneous lesions, we don't need eight levels of, of evidence-based support in dermatology because the research that gets done is the research that gets paid for. It's not that we're slack. It's just that there's infinite money. There are 15 diseases in cardiology and infinite money to study 
any drug that's going to be a $5 billion U.S. drug that treats any of those. In dermatology, we have like 10 diseases that are on the radar screen for drug development, and the market is more like $100 million, so it's not even on the radar screen for most companies, which is why many derm pharma companies are disappearing from our specialty. If you can have a new melanoma drug for $150,000 for a couple weeks of treatment that doesn't actually cure people, in, in, um, then you know, why as a company would you make you know, a new cream? So, we're a little bit off the radar screen. That sounds a little cynical, but it's, it's actually, there's some truth that we can talk about it more in the next session. So I only use, in the book, uh, three categories, double-blind study, case series, or anecdote. I tend to use a lot of colchicine. Unfortunately, it's now the FDA made them go back and do some more data, because it's too old a drug. It was used by Hippocrates, and it's called Colchris, and it costs a lot more. Use Dapsone, but monitor it like for DH with a G6PD. I like the combination. I can get a lot of patients off steroids who just have skin disease. If the skin lesions are ulcerating, you can use rheumatologic methotrexate, which is a lot safer than derm methotrexate, because if you're treating psoriasis, when do you stop? These episodes of vasculitis might only last six or eight weeks. If you do prednisone and you do a medrol dose pack taper, patients going along like this, they get better, and then the disease gets really angry. See, I gave it a personality again when you take the steroid away too quickly, and it doesn't stop where it was, it rebounds, it gets a lot worse. And final slide, if there's more severe disease, systemic disease, then the patient most probably needs systemic corticosteroids plus a steroid-sparing drug, or perhaps some of the newer immunomodulating drugs, and there's certainly newer, exciting ways, there are new treatments that are evolving for hepatitis C, and um, there are other things that you can do when patients have more severe disease that justify the higher cost of these therapies. When we come back from the break, uh, a half hour from now, I'm gonna talk about all the other things except the bullous diseases. Uh, but I really wanted to spend a lot of time on this to make some general global points about complex medical derm patients. Thanks.